Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And here, uh, Black Lives Matter. If you disagree with that, feel free to just click that back button, unsubscribe, and be done with us. Please and thank you. Agreed. That's it. That's all I got. Uh, I guess we should actually do a show this week. We, d- we didn't do one last week. It is, it's, it's been difficult to try and focus on creating content in times like these. I mean, not just like Corona and being quarantined and separated from everyone, but with all of the protests that are rightfully going on and everything, it's just like my, my mind has been elsewhere. It is very difficult for me to actually concentrate on building magic decks and magic formats and all that sort of stuff. And Last week was even a time when we should have thrived really with like a BNR announcement. So like if, if that doesn't give you an idea of like how stressful and anxious we are right now, I hope that does. Yeah, it's challenging circumstances to be sure. You said very clearly where we stand. I certainly second that. Supporting all the folks out there protesting right now, Black Lives Matter 100%. Get gone if you're not with that. But there's this weird tension where I want to be able to give people peace too. I want to be able to give people a distraction because this is a long fight and we're going to fight for months, years, however long it takes. So there has to be a degree of balance in our approach and we have to stay strong, stamina high, keep going. So let's allow these little diversions into magic cards. But like you said, a lot of my mind space has been elsewhere for a few months now, quite frankly. But there were some big events to draw us back in, and I am excited to talk about them and get your opinion on them. So why don't we do that? Why don't we move on to some magic cards? Stamina high? Keep stamina high? How do you even get <laughs> stamina too high? I what start is the stamina, stamina you speak of? I start with stamina low, and it goes lower, buddy. So I don't I don't understand. Yeah. Anyway. I, I know where you're coming from. We're going to do our best, though, to stay engaged and rejuvenated and fighting for as long as humanly possible, as long as it takes. Yeah, I'm, so magic-wise, content-wise, I'm going to do my best. Uh, know that if I'm putting out a piece of content, I, I certainly am trying my best. But, you know, if I'm not super active, if I'm not responding to your messages or, like, you know, talking about new decks or maybe I take a week off from writing or whatever, like, please, please just be okay with that. You know, like, just un- understand that we're we're all going through a lot of crap right now. I will say uh, our community has been basically uniformly supportive of our decisions and our approaches. So I just want to give a shout out to everyone who listens for having our back. I do feel like this entire listenership does have our back when it comes to these type of things. You know, they respect us as people. They respect that we're pulled in other ways sometimes. And I do really appreciate that. Yeah, they're the best. Not close. Mm-hmm. For anyway, sure. uh, M21 New core set. Uh, also, some stuff just got banned. Fires of Invention, Asian of Treachery. Companion got nerfed a bunch. So the format right now, I guess, like leading up to the Pro Tour thing. What, what is it? What is it called? Play. I think it's Players Tour again. I, you ask me this every time, and I still don't know every single time you ask me. <laughs> I didn't know if they changed the branding or whatever. Anyway, so yeah, there's a, a Pro Tour thing, a PT uh, this weekend using the old format, which is always kind of awkward during preview season. It's it's really tough for me to like care about the old format when uh, a new set is on the horizon. I'm already like brewing decks and thinking about it and stuff. But it, it the old format basically feels like right after Oko got banned, just everything yep. is like super tame. And that's a good thing, I think. And that opens the door for a lot of these cool core set cards to actually make a splash. Yeah, I think that's true once the set arrives. As far as the present moment, these bands did nothing to rekindle my interest in standard. Like there wasn't even a, usually there's a moment where I'm like, okay, let's think about this, think about this. And I was just like, oh, we just rewound and added Shark Typhoon to the format. And that's not doing a whole lot for me. So I haven't re-engaged with standard. I was pretty disappointed with how conservative the approach was. I guess coming up on rotation, you can see why you would take a conservative approach, but I was really hoping for something that would rejuvenate my interest in standard. Didn't work for me. Sounds like it didn't work for a lot of people. I have never seen this level of apathy for a PT. I mean, nothing even close to it. It doesn't matter what the timing was. doesn't matter what the set was. doesn't what doesn't matter what the format was. Apathy is at an all-time high when it comes to what's supposed to be the flagship event for Magic the Gathering. 
Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about stamina being high. I'm, I'm living that apathy life right now. You and a lot of other people, especially when it comes to this standard format, but there are shakeups on the horizon. This is a powerful course. And it's funny because you think back to M20, course at 2020, we were pretty lukewarm on it. Like certainly we identified some powerful cards. We were really into the sideboard stuff, but we didn't think it was a real game changer. And now in retrospect, probably the most impactful course at ever. Until now. Maybe until now. I'm calling it. Here. Maybe. I'm calling it. Uh, so there are a lot of cards. Uh, not a, a lot of cards have been previewed. I think we're sitting at about like 70 out of 200 and something. But we're going to try and talk about the ones that we want to talk about, probably the most impactful ones, and then maybe cover some of the stuff that we missed last week or on the next week. Uh, just because I don't think we're going to have time to talk about every single card that we think is going to actually make an impact in standard. Yeah, let's just hop around a little bit. And then once we have the full set, we'll probably come back and give more in-depth insight to the big picture implications of this set. Yeah, so uh, let's get it. We are we are on Scryfall. We have sorted by uh, image and by color. And I'm just going to kind of scroll through here and talk about things that catch my eye. Cool? Sounds good. Bane Slayer Angel, I think, is mediocre. <sighs> yeah. I mean, it's crazy to say that, but creatures that don't impact the battlefield immediately don't matter right now. Not at five mana, not with Teferi around. Now, is there a window once Teferi rotates to start reconsidering these cards? I think so. I, I think you can give them a look. There's still some real impediments, and that also assumes that no more impediments will come along in the meantime as we wait for Teferi to leave the format. Right. Uh, you know, stuff like Brazen Borrower is still around. It's just so many low cost ways, uh, not only cost in terms of mana, but cost in terms of deck building cost to answer a card like Baneslayer Angel right now. Feels outdated, feels outmoded, and. This card will have a moment. I'm, I don't think it'll make it through the standard format scene zero play, but it's not one of the big slam dunks of this set for me. Yeah, next up, Basri Ket, new white Mythic Planeswalker, one dub dub, three starting loyalty, plus one, put a plus one, plus one counter on up to one target creature. It gains indestructible until end of turn. Minus two, whenever one or more non-token creatures attack this turn, create that many 1-1 white soldier creature tokens that are tapped and attacking. And minus six, you get an emblem with at the beginning of combat on your turn, create a 1-1 white soldier creature token, then put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. Ultimate, not super like game ending or anything. Plus one is solid. Minus two, I feel like is just going to give you like a, a pretty reasonable burst in the mid game if things are going well and that's basically what i want out of a card like this yeah creature explosion really happening with uh basri cat i don't quite understand how this works with winota yet does this mean more winota triggers when these one one white soldiers <laughs> are attacking so i was i was talking to nick prince about this today actually and i asked him about that because I wasn't super familiar with the text on either card. Mm -hmm. So I believe Winota is whenever a non-human creature you control attacks, do right. the thing. And this is put them into play attacking. Tapped and attacking. So they're not ever actually attacking it's to get the Winota trigger is what you're saying. I believe so. I believe on this it, turn. Yeah, I believe it does not work. Nick's, Nick's point was I'm pretty sure it doesn't work, but... If nothing else, it it's like uh, raise the alarm that gives you more gas for the next turn. Yep. And I, I think that's the way to look at it, that even if it doesn't directly enable that turn, you're just getting bigger as time goes on. And this plays well with both th both sides of Winota. Obviously, Winota looks a little different with the absence of Agent of Treachery from the format, but there are still like Marty humans lists out there. I see playing Winota. Basri Ket going to be real nice there. I am afraid of Winota, which also, by the way, was emergency banned after the bans came out <laughs> for Historic, which I, that's a mind blower. But anyway. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, you're fine with it? Well, <laughs> it's it's not the, the in the top 20 of dumbest things that they've done this week, so it's fine. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Always the optimist, Gerald. I like, I like your shiny disposition as it relates to that ban decision. But uh, I, I do like this card. I think it's 
pretty impactful for white aggressive decks. It plays well with the themes of white aggressive decks and how they have worked recently. Going to have some time with like venerated Loxodon, which is nice. And uh, I'm pretty high on this card, seeing a decent amount of play. I don't think it's a world beater, but a good solid addition to white aggressive decks. Yeah, agreed with that. Uh, next up, we have Bosri's Lieutenant, three dub, three four, creature human knight, vigilance, protection from multicolored. When this enters the battlefield, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. So it could be itself. And whenever this or another creature you control dies, if it had a plus one, plus one counter on it, create a two, two white knight creature token with vigilance. A decent amount of like sweeper protection. I I do feel like, especially with Bosri and you you mentioned venerated Loxodon, I kind of want to do the whole like 18 land white aggro deck, not necessarily like a, a 24 land, like insulate myself from sweepers kind of thing. So I'm not sure if the Lieutenant is great. It is a Knight, which could potentially matter. Yeah. But I'm, I'm more excited about versions of the deck that don't play this card. Mostly agree. This card feels like it's floating a little bit uh, away from that deck style and a little bit more into the mid-range because I, I do think the abilities present here line up very well against a lot of the format. Obviously, this brawls very well with things like Uro, doesn't get bounced by Teferi. So that seems very important to me, at least for a few months until those rotations happen. I don't know. A lot of text on this card and a good amount of it, meaningful text for the format as it exists right now. But your investment's getting pretty high. Your immediate return on this card pretty low. And I I think you just ask for immediate impact from a creature at this point. It's very hard for a creature to justify itself when it doesn't have a full spell attached to it. Plus one, plus one on target creature you control doesn't strike me as a full spell. Yeah, I mean, you need to get more out of the bottom half, I think. Like that, that has to actually matter. So. Right. You're playing against like Shatter the Sky or something. You can put a counter on itself, so then you get the card and a two-two, which is kind of nice. Yeah, but I agree. Like in, in any sort of creature matchup, it's like this is a fine body. It has vigilance. Pro multicolored is probably going to do some stuff in combat, and then maybe the counter helps you outsize some stuff. Uh, it deters your opponent from like trading in combat potentially if you have more things that put counters on things. So. I don't want to immediately dismiss this card. I do think it'll probably see some amount of play. It's just like not really where I want to be because getting into those situations, I it's not how I envision you winning most games or matchups. A lot of the question too is how many plus one, plus one counters are we going to be able to effectively throw around? Like we saw Basri Ket as one way to do it. We know Loxodon is out there, but you really need to know exactly what is surrounding this card in the format to see how well supported it is. Because you're right, I do think you need to get benefit out of that second clause. Heliod, maybe. Like, you could probably splice this with a Johnny's Pride Mate type of stuff, but... Oh, maybe. Who knows? What else we got? Seasoned Hollow Blade, one dub, three one. Creature, human warrior, discard a card, tap this. It gains indestructible until end of turn. This is a bad Adanto Vanguard, but that's not a bad thing. A lot of room for Adanto Vanguard to be worse and still be playable. So kind of buy this one as another important effect. This is actually, I've built some white decks recently, and it does feel like this is the body that has been missing from them. That's sticky, but still aggressive to drop. Without Adanto Vanguard, there just hasn't been an adequate replacement. So this certainly fits the bill. Yep. And then Selfless Savior. This is one of my favorite cards in the set for sure. Dub 1-1. Much, much better than people think it is, I think. Dub 1-1, one, one, creature Doge. Sacrifice this, another target creature you control gains indestructible until end of turn. So if your creature deck is about setting up something like General Kudro of Dranith, or maybe you want to do like Judith things, or protect your Johnny's pride mate or uh, use Luris to bring this back and then it can protect your Luris. I, I think you can get a lot of mileage out of this and uh, Elseid of Life's Bounty already saw a decent amount of play and I think that for the most part, this is better. Agree with you. Two things I really want to say about this. Can you believe this card was in the set after Luris was printed? That's just mind-blowing because here's your Luris set up just in one package, you, you yep. get Luris for the rest of the game. Congratulations. And the other thing I want to say about that is 
are, are people just forgetting you can play companions in your main deck? Because Loris is a good magic card, and I yeah. am not seeing them right now in decks, and it kind of blows my mind. And once Selfless Savior arrives, I have a feeling we're going to see a lot more, just a bunch of Loris in my deck, because that is a very, very real magic card, and it doesn't have to be your companion to matter. Yeah, you can actually just play four of that card. It's It's fine, and I kind of recommend doing so, especially when your other option right now is a companion Luris that costs six. I'm not really about that life. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see a big uptick in Luris's once we have Selfless Savior in the mix. Just playing fair, showing up in decks, because that that card is 100% good enough to do so. Do you think that extends to older formats as well? Are people supposed to be looking at just playing Luris as a very good creature in modern, maybe legacy still? We're abandoned legacy. We're not getting that one back, I don't think. Yeah, uh, for for modern, I definitely think so. I think that there were a lot of instances where having it as your companion was just a good plan, but now that it it costs a lot more mana to actually do that, it might not be worth it, and maybe you do just want to play multiple copies in like your death and taxes type of deck. I've already seen people doing like normal death shadow where they can traverse for a Luris. I like that that idea yeah. too. So you're yeah, not you're nice. not playing you're not playing multiple copies of Luris. But you you sort of are with Traverse, and I think that there are a lot of decks out there that could benefit from it. Like maybe the Pioneer decks that are like Return to the Ranks, Rally the Ancestors that used to have Luris as a companion could just main deck some of those. Hmm. And when it comes to Standard, I think we're going to see a large number of main deck Lurises coming up in the next uh, year and a half or so. Yeah, I think so too. Moving on to Blue, we have Teferi, Master of Time, 2UU. Three starting loyalty. Static ability is you may activate loyalty abilities of this on any player's turn anytime you could cast an instant. And plus one, draw a card, then discard a card. Minus three, target creature you don't control phases out. Uh, go look up the rules on phasing. And minus 10, take two extra turns after this one, which is kind of awkward with the static, but whatever. Little bit. This one definitely took me a minute to wrap my head around. First, I didn't understand its ability, quite frankly. And I was like, oh, it seems like a pretty low loyalty. And it just didn't click. Like, I knew you could activate on your opponent's turn, but it didn't immediately register you could activate on your turn and your opponent's turn. Right. I don't know why I had that mental block. I guess this is the first time we've seen this ability, so it's not really uh, super odd that I wasn't able to piece it together. But once I did... I am into Teferi, Master of Time. It does feel more like an older Planeswalker than a newer Planeswalker. Uh, And a lot of that is missing the impactful static ability, obviously, and costing four as opposed to three, because that's kind of where we get our Planeswalkers now. Despite that fact, though, the two activations thing, that's rapid progression through your deck, and then it gets to a pretty safe loyalty, plus immediate protection in terms of phasing out an opposing creature. I think Teferi does a good job of playing that old style of magic where it does make the game about it when it comes onto the battlefield. And that used to be what like all of Standard was based around. You have this very powerful permanent, you establish it, you make the game about it, you protect it, and you pull pretty far ahead. I think Teferi is going to do a good job of that. You have to get some value out of your graveyard, I think. Thankfully, there are good cards to do that in this set, as well as things like Uro. So I am pretty into Teferi, and I think it's a really cool design, and I'm excited to at least try it out. Yeah, it's a a weird design. Like I said, I don't really like the ultimate with the static. I feel like they could have done an alt that, you know, maybe played better with it or at least wasn't so blatantly in opposition with it but I do like the design a decent amount minus bringing back phasing. I don't know if that's a thing that they're just going to do or whatever, but I don't know. I, I read that as like a one of callback to this card, which obviously has a very long historical tie to the phasing ability and it's weird. It's quirky. It certainly will cause rule, rules problems, but not to like the same extent as mutate did. So fair. We just lived through that. We can probably live through Teferi. And here it at least feels flavorful and cool. Yeah. You you mentioned maybe you need to get some use out of your graveyard with this because Teferi is just card neutral. You're just sifting the entire time and mm-hmm. there's no way to actually get card advantage from it. But I also think it's worth noting that anytime you are just gaining incidental resources or extra cards from something, like you know, say you cast a Cultivate or whatever, and maybe you already had enough lands. 
right. that makes Teferi that much better. So I don't know. Uh, just just look look for things like that too, where it doesn't necessarily have to be graveyard oriented or you know bartered cow or whatever. Like <laughs> I'm I'm looking at bartered cow a lot because there's a lot of things that allow you to discard cards in this set. But sure. Yeah, just like anything that you don't mind uh, discarding, even even stuff just like Birth of Miletus, right? It's like, you know, at some point you're probably just going to end up with a bunch of lands in your hand. And this does a good job of filtering through all of that nonsense. Yeah, good way to upgrade cards. I think that's a very fine way to look at Teferi. I also just am excited to cast some frantic inventories for sure. So Teferi plays with that. Okay, I mean, you could probably just cast the frantic inventory, but still, loading up the graveyard is going to pay dividends for... Uh, a lot of what Blue is doing right now. Yeah, and Frantic Inventory is the new accumulated knowledge. One, you instant draw card, then draw cards equal to the number of cards named Frantic Inventory in your graveyard. Uh, that, yeah, that's a that's a good thing. But I don't know. I So there was, uh, I think it was Take Inventory. That was a sorcery speed version of this that came out. And I kind of got burned by that card just being very, very poor. And mm-hmm. I feel like this being an instant doesn't do a whole lot to actually change that. See, it's weird because if you had asked me if accumulated knowledge was too good to reprint, like I probably would have said yes, but not for any good reason. Just the fact that we've been through basically like Modern Horizons and it didn't make the cut there. So there's just this level of assumption. It was kind of like the Diabolic Edict effect, right? Where we go to just forever without seeing Diabolic Edict and you're like, oh, okay, there must be something I don't understand about this card where it's way too good to reprint. And then we get Liliana's Triumph. It sees no play whatsoever. Right. And it doesn't matter whatsoever. It, it, it could be a lot of the same stuff going on with Frantic Inventory, where I had elevated this card to such a high level in my head. And then in actual application, it's just nowhere near that good. Yeah. AK had things like Intuition and Merchant Scroll and I guess Sapphire Medallion too, to some degree going for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it still it sees in- occasional play, even in like Legacy. You see it in the Miracles decks for sure. Those Miracles decks are built so poorly and AK is not even the tip of the iceberg. Uh, in, in Standard, the games also went pretty long and you had Factor Fiction too. So you would just like tear through your deck at a, a rapid pace. And right. in Standard, it just doesn't seem like you're going to be AKing for three all that often. But yeah, I mean, if you get to Teferi away the first one, you draw the second one. Two mana draw to you, that's solid. I, I could see that. But the Teferi decks that I'm interested in are also just like Urian decks, so I'd rather just play Omen of the Sea anyway, even though sure. I'm not very high on Omen of the Sea, but whatever. Yeah, there's going to be some tension. Uh, that's the thing when all the cards are really good. Is That's, a- that's great. We have deck yep. building decisions and they matter. That's good. Cool. I love that. All right. Uh, Archfiend's Vessel, a.k.a. Sam Black's Invitational card. Uh, actually, this game, this card might win the game too quickly to be Sam Black's Invitational card. This right. is you just uh, want to play around with your permanents for a little bit longer before you. Yeah. So B one one creature human cleric lifelink. When this enters the battlefield, if it entered from your graveyard or you cast it from your graveyard, exile it. If you do create a five five black demon creature token with flying, there's a decent amount of ways to reanimate this, and it kind of feels the, the same to me as like the frantic inventory thing where it's like if you build your deck with a ton of ways to reanimate it, but you don't actually find it or find multiple copies of it, then it is kind of sad. But uh, thankfully, there's just things like uh, Luris and Call of the, the Death Dweller that are just incidentally good and you should just play them anyway. Look, I'm only going to do this for one week. I promise after this, I will stop doing this. But the idea that you print one of the best magic cards ever made and then just jam it full of the hardest support you possibly can in the next set with Archwing's Vessel and the Protection Hound. It's kind of crazy. I think that would have been a sizable part of standard and maybe it still would be because you can just, like I said, play your main deck Lorises. There's a pretty nice black white deck coming together here with four Lorises and you can do like the cruel celebrant type stuff and still do priest for a while. And mushing all of that together seems very exciting to me. And the power level seems like it's getting there with these really, really juiced Luris targets. So I think that you're not going to hard build around the vessel but there's enough ways to play this incidentally and still get value from like the front side the one one little body that this will be a player yeah absolutely i mean a lot of these 
black sacrifice decks played one drops that they didn't particularly want to use, just things like gutter bones whisper mm-hmm. squad was fine but not great and it's just like oh okay well, i'll just play this and i was on the fence between how many call of the death dwellers i wanted to play i guess right. i'm just upping that number by one now pretty easily and you talked about trying to convince people to play more lurises in their main deck well there you go yeah very easy way to make that argument uh, we also have Eliminate, 1B Instant, Destroy Target Creature or Planeswalker with Converted Mana Cost 3 or less. This card is nice. Best removal spell we've seen in a very long time, because this is actually what magic is about. You need to be able to answer things like Teferi, like Narset, uh, like the new 3-mana Planeswalker we're getting in this set. So uh, this feels like a big upgrade. Now, every set, there is a removal spell where I'm like, ooh, this is really good. We just had Heartless Act, which I also thought was quite good as a removal spell. Saw almost no play whatsoever. So That's not true. In in standard, it sees virtually no play. Like occasional one to two copies in a deck that's probably not very good. I mean, it it dude, it was it was indexed. Like just because so like the black decks were like these companion aggro decks, and now right. they're not that anymore. And if you are incentivized to play removal spells, I think you would have Heartless Act. Okay. Maybe it's more about not being incentivized to play those spells and less about the actual quality of the card. But this beats a lot of those concerns as well because you have a fail state of killing Teferi, killing Narset. So as long as those cards are part of the format, uh, I expect Eliminate to be around and see more play than removal spells have seen recently. Yeah. And... It is awkward, obviously, if, if they Teferi bounce your thing and then you have to eliminate it at some point in the future or Narset, they get a card and then you eliminate it. It's not a perfect answer, but it's better than just those things being alive for the entire time and you not Correct. being able to do anything about it. So I'm happy that this exists and this is a pretty big pickup for any of like the, the Sultai ramp decks, you know, where they basically just like couldn't really deal with opposing planeswalkers that well. And now you just have this clean thing that can replace the Heartless Act or Tyrant Scorn that they used to play, and it's not completely dead against opposing mid-ranger control decks. So this card is nice. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this card does going forward. Uh, once War of the Spark leaves the format, if it still has a home, I expect we won't be seeing as many three mana planeswalkers, but I said Hope that before not. War of the Spark, so we'll Hope see not. what happens. Right. We also have Grasp of Darkness. Uh, I recommend targeting creatures that have four toughness or less. Ooh, good strategy insights. That's what the people are here for, to get that cutting insight that you offer, Gerald. But yeah, that card's solid. Grim Tutor, which I think does nothing. It's weird, right? That's another one of those that, oh, this card must be too powerful, but it's not. I mean, this this will be fine. It'll occasionally see play, but losing a mana off of Diabolical Tutor doesn't really do a whole lot for me right now. All right. Curious what you have to say about this one. Liliana, Waker of the Dead, 2BB, for starting loyalty, Legendary Planeswalker Liliana, plus one. Each player discards a card, which could be a bartered cow. And each opponent who can't loses three life if you ran out of cows. Minus three. Target creature gets minus X, minus X until end of turn where X is the number of cards in your graveyard. And minus seven, you get an emblem with at the beginning of combat on your turn, put target creature card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. It gains haste. Here's the thing. You cannot play resource denial in standard. It's it's almost impossible to do so. I've tried so hard. There is like... Croxa and Duress and Heartless Act, or excuse me, uh, Agonizing Memories, Drill Agonizing bit. Remorse, Drill Bit, Drill bit. yes, all, all of these ways to eat up a hand, and I believed, I believed wholeheartedly that this was something realistic you could do, I built so many decks around it, and they all failed. Now, a lot of that was the fact that Companion made that idea laughable. There was no way you were ever going to run anyone out of resources, but it's a lot about how all of standard is built. And that's a very challenging thing to just eat everything your opponent can possibly do and control the game that way. But this kind of feels like it's there. The power level feels good enough. I mean, we were kind of missing this persistent effect, uh, a way to 
really tighten the vice when your opponent did get low on resources. They'd have yeah. some explosion and build back up. We didn't have Liliana to really close the door. Now we do. I still think there are some cards that make this very challenging. Things like Hydroid Crisis being around continue to be a problem. Uh, Nissa still exists. So that leads to very large explosions of not only pressure on your Liliana, but also eventually cards translated through Hydroid Crisis or Uro. So it doesn't feel like this is going to be a slam dunk out of the gates, but long-term, I believe there will be a home for this card. I, I, I feel like this is a card that I should like, and I just don't. Part of the reason is that the minus three on a turn four Liliana is just not really going to do anything. Yeah, probably not. It's a very small removal spell. So that that really worries me, makes it seem like if you just look at it like, oh, you know, the plus one is like Liliana the Veil plus a clock. The minus three is a removal spell. The ultimate probably ends the game. And it's like, well, it's not it's not really that, though, because the minus is is so, so bad. And four is a lot. There's a lot of competition at four mana. And I, I just don't think that this Liliana is going to make it. I don't think it incidentally makes it. I think there can be decks built around Liliana, which may have success. That's yeah. where I fall on this card. I, I don't think on its face it's just like powerful enough to justify itself. You have to really focus on making a deck to maximize this card. Like I said, there needs to be some changes to the format before I expect that strategy to work, but the power level is there to me. Village rights be instant as an additional cost to cast this spell, sack a creature, draw two cards. What do you think? Very good. Surprisingly good. And Taking a mana off of this effect, this usually costs us two. Getting down to one is a big, big get. We have a lot of cheap creatures we can burn through. The aforementioned Luris stuff. It feels like we are getting down to some really, really tiny converted mana costs, and we're going to have a lot of play on our turns. There's plenty of disposable creatures like Whisper Squad out there if we want to go that route. So I believe this is a real source of card advantage, and at one mana, good enough for standard play 100%, maybe even reaching into older formats. Yeah, I actually think it's more likely to hit on ol- in older formats than in standard. Like playing, okay. the, playing the sacrifice decks in standard, like obviously you have ways to sacrifice your things for value, but most of the time it was about like building up your board position and then cashing in on the sacrifice effects, not just like, oh, play out my cauldron familiar and then just like immediately burn it to draw two cards. It's like that, that doesn't really get you anywhere. So I'm very hesitant to just like load up a standard deck that has like four copies of this. I think I'd rather be playing to the board more. And then in older formats with things like stitcher supplier, it's like, Oh, okay. Like this, this card is actually pretty attractive. Yeah. I buy that. I'm just, it's very efficient. One mana. You start looking at one mana spells that get you two cards. I think it merits a lot of consideration in a lot of places. Agree that present standard sacrifice decks may not be interested in this, but there's going to be a rebuild of that deck. We look at the tools available here. I expect a very different take going forward for what the sacrifice decks are looking like just because they've gotten such good payoffs in this particular set. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely true. We are going to see a lot of innovation and probably a lot of different versions too when it's all said and done. Mm Mm-hmm. On to red, we have Chandra, Heart of Fire, 3RR, 5 starting loyalty, plus 1, discard your hand, then exile the top 3 cards of your library until end of turn. You may play cards exiled this way, plus 1, this deals 2 damage to any target, and minus 9, search your library and graveyard for any number of red instants and or sorceries, exile them, shuffle your library, you may cast them this turn, add 6R. So I wrote about this card this week. Because when I saw it, I was pretty excited about it. And as I spent more time thinking about the card, building around the card, I actually think it has a lot of problems. And a lot of the problems are how this interacts with the rest of the cards in the typical red decks that you would include Chandra in. A lot of what I wanted to do was just burn a lot of resources early use Chandra mostly as a way to control the battlefield, but also have access to the uh, discard outlet that Chandra provided and then set up things like Elspeth Conqueror's Death on Ugin, like doing a lot of big red type <laughs> stuff. But a lot of the cards you want to play in those type of strategies do not work well with Chandra whatsoever. Like you want some redundant 
discard outlets. So you look at things like Thrill of Possibility, and it's like, oh, that card just doesn't work. Like, period, does not work with Chandra. Uh, it's really hard to get the minus nine to actually kill someone. Like, you can do Slaying Fire type stuff, which is what a lot of my decks did. But, I mean, if you're keeping a Chandra around to nine loyalty anyway, you've probably done enough and generated enough value that you don't really have to worry about the ultimate being lethal. I do think the two damage to any target is way better than people think it is. Kills Planeswalkers. Picking off off Planeswalkers is a huge part of the thing, but also just adding a bunch of reach to your deck. It goes really well in like a mid-range strategy where you get some chip damage in early, and then Chandra can just come down and finish the job. It creates multiple points of pressure. So I'm somewhere in the middle on this card. I wouldn't say I expect it to be a focal point. Uh, It had me interested in building a bunch of decks around it. I found a Jeskai deck that I thought was pretty interesting. Again, the same Ugin, Chandra, Elspeth Conqueror's Death type stuff, but using Urian still and Thrill, or excuse me, Thirst for, what is the enchantment? Thirst for Knowledge, Thirst for Meaning, thank you. Uh, Using those type of setups for my Ugin reanimation or Chandra reanimation, it all seemed fine, but not completely over the moon on this Chandra yet. This card would be pretty good with fires, yeah? Every card is good with fires, Jerry. That's really <laughs> not a high bar. Just throwing that out there. Uh, Chandra's Pyreling, 1R, 1-3, creature elemental wizard. Whenever a source you control deals non-combat damage to an opponent, this gets plus one, plus zero, oh, and gains double strike until end of turn. This is a pretty aggressively costed two drop. Cheap double strike is very sneaky and can do uh, a lot of damage very quickly, so... Wouldn't sleep on this one. I don't have a home for it yet, but I, I am always aware of cheap ways to get creatures double strike. Yeah, it's not super easy to enable, but I don't know. I feel like we could probably get there. Probably. All right. Scrolling down through all of these bad red cards. No, no, no. You got you got to scroll back because I want to talk about the card oh, right after Chandra's Pyreling. I, I need to know your opinion on conspicuous snoop i will allow you to do the honors of revealing this card rr22 creature goblin rogue play with the top card of your library revealed you may cast goblin spells from the top of your library as long as the top card of your library is a goblin card this has all activated abilities of that card this is busted obviously but not in standard just a modern card just a legacy card maybe all that good stuff uh pioneer maybe historic probably Boggart Harbinger is $15 presently. That did not take long. come on. If you're not in on the joke, basically you put a kiki-jiki on the top of your library. If your conspicuous snoop does not have summoning sickness, you basically win the game on the spot, assuming it survives. So people really like quote-unquote splinter twins. Everything's a splinter twin. This ignores the best part of splinter twin in that it doesn't come down as an instant. This is a... Devoted Druid Vizier combo, but with a really good B plan. So I actually am a believer in this deck for the modern format. It, it seems solid to me. There's a good solid base there. Uh, good aggressive goblins deck. You have Ether Vile stuff. You can do Chalice stuff. So this seems like a meaningful print for sure. It is uh, just just not in standard. But I, I, I do think it is potentially busted. We shall see. Cultivate. Uh, reprint, uh, 2G sorcery, search your library for up to two basic land cards, reveal them, put one on the battlefield tapped, the other into your hand, then shuffle your library. I mean, this is this is green divination. It accelerates you. We already have a lot of good ramp options, including Uro, but this does something a little bit different and I think is going to see a lot of play, maybe not as a four of, but certainly in relatively high numbers. This is an incredible ramp spell. If you've played with this before, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This is a reprint. It does that trick you talked about with Teferi, where you get a card to upgrade in card quality later on. So that's something to note. We are going to have to replace Growth Spiral. That's probably for the best. Do you mean in our decks currently? Because that's not happening. No, no, no. I mean, when it leaves. I I am thinking of things mostly at rotation right now. Maybe I'm way too far ahead of myself and should slow my roll. Yes. Uh, But but I really can't wait for rotation. So I I understand. It's a lot of where my head is at presently. But I don't think Cultivate will hop into decks immediately because Growth Spiral is so good. It'll take some time to get going. Like you said, maybe one of two of. But I would assume upon rotation, Cultivate, too good not to see play. 
dude, like Saltai and these Bant ramp decks, they they will love this card, especially if they're playing Urian and you just have a bunch of slots already. I think this is good in Wilderness Reclamation. Uh, basically, like a lot of my decks have had like three Uro and two Cultivate. But Okay, so you're coming out with it right away. Yeah, in, in 80 card decks, I could see going harder on it depending on what you're trying to do. Right, certainly very different restrictions on 80 card decks you're trying to accomplish a lot of redundancy and you need to go a lot deeper in these type of effects so certainly with urian expect to see this card there's a garrick too that has not been uh translated fully so i don't know what liberto actually translates to but it's two gg four starting loyalty plus one up to one target creature gets plus three plus three and gains trample until end of turn minus two create a 3-3 green beast creature token. Then if an opponent controls more creatures than you, put a loyalty counter on this and minus seven, create an emblem with at the beginning of your end step, you may search your library for a creature card, put it on the battlefield and shuffle your library. The minus two is very interesting to me and I don't really know what to make of it right now, but I think even if that was just a straight up minus one, I would have this Garrick a little bit lower on the present Planeswalker scale. That's not to say it's bad. Like certainly two years ago, I probably would have been all about this card, but the barrier is just so high for entry into standard right now. Any type of aggressive mono green deck will look at Garrick. I am not incentivized to play an aggressive mono green deck just because Garrick exists though. Although apparently that's, that's the hotness right now. A lot of people playing giant growth again in standard. Who knew that was coming? But Sir maybe Farron, that continues. <laughs> Sir Farron is busted. That's all you got to know. Powerful creature. Dude, Heroic Intervention is a nice little reprint for those That's decks true. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, good some little tools. Work. Good little some, tools for these green decks. Uh, there's also an upgraded Prey Upon. That's like kind of cool, but not not really doing a whole lot to incentivize me to play the deck either. So, Yeah, and... If, if you were playing it, I think it has less to do with this Garrick and more about making this like a, a fine addition, maybe even a sideboard card where you just need some staying power against control decks. I don't know. Not a slam dunk for me, but an interesting card. I, and I really like the approach of the minus two. I find that I like these kind of modal activations that change in scale depending on your opponent's battlefield. I think that's interesting. Unexplored space. Yeah, we need more timely reinforcements. That card was so sick. Always with the timely reinforcements. Listen, outside of it being completely busted and that card winning me tens of thousands of dollars, there probably should be more of that design space explored where it's modal depending on what's happening in the game. Agreed. I I do think it is an interesting space. Anyway, uh, Land of War Visionary, 2G, 2-2, Elf Druid. When this enters the battlefield, draw a card, tap, add G like kind of busted, but also in the same set as cultivate. I don't, I don't know how to feel about this one. I feel like if you're a Simic like creature based version, kind of what we've seen before, I think this card's a slam dunk, but the other options are also just very strong. Yeah. Creature-ish combo setups, things like the mutate deck come to mind. They could really benefit from a card like this. I don't know. little fragility built in but immediately replaces itself this is a unique card i expect again had this been two to three years ago i'd probably be over the moon about this card as it stands right now it's going to compete with a lot of options but i do expect this to find out cool uh on to the artifacts we can talk about the solemn simulacrum reprint love this card one of my all-time favorite cards actually uh just enjoy playing with it i'm happy to put a solemn simulacrum into play what do you think about its odds in present standard 100 percent. yeah yeah uh any urian deck any sort of rampy deck i think it's probably quite good it pairs well with ugin you you do kind of run into the problem where you just have too many good ramp options which i don't know i mean that that's fine i suppose uh, but even even like the control decks, you know, like, I don't know, maybe Azorius control can play this. Yeah, my my Chandra, Ugin, Elspeth Conquers Death decks were very into this card. Pretty happy to return it to the battlefield multiple times and you benefit from having tons of mana in play. So I expect this to see play. If it doesn't, I'm going to be really disappointed because like I said, one of my all time favorite magic cards. 
I would be shocked, completely shocked. Like this card would almost certainly make my top 10 list if we were putting reprints on it. So, okay. How do you feel about Maze Mind Tome? Do you feel like I'm going to like this card? This looks a lot <laughs> like a treasure map to me. So I, I'm sure you're just all in. Two generic mana artifact. Tap, put a page counter on this, scry one. Two, tap, put a page counter on this, draw a card. When there are four or more page counters on this, exile it. If you do, gain four life. Go off. Tell tell us why there will be four of these in every deck you build for the foreseeable uh, future. So this is this this card is kind of small ball, right? If our opponents are doing wilderness reclamation things or you know fires, if that still existed, then this isn't really what you want to be doing because uh, you'll you'll just you'll just get caught up, right? Like you need to play Narsa, Teferi, these things that give you an advantage while also kind of stopping your opponent from doing what they're doing whereas the Tome is just going to sit there and do nothing. But I don't think that all of the games will necessarily be like that. If they're, This better have been in your Chandra Ugin deck. It wasn't? I don't know if it wasn't previewed or I just wasn't into this. Yeah, it was one of the first cards previewed, man. You yeah, just, I just, you, just wasn't about it then. You saw Treasure Map, you kept on going. Uh, right. this, this is really good with Urian. This, this will be in all the Urian decks, hands down. Interesting. One of the big things I do like about this card is that with magic cards being as powerful as as they presently are, you are super incentivized to never, ever, under any circumstances, miss a land drop. And I like the fact that this comes down on two and gets you an immediate free scry to make sure you hit that third land because you can't miss. It, It gets you two. You can upkeep it too. That is true. Yeah. So it really guarantees that you get paid in that spot doing a little bit of like the birth of Miletus thing, still playing well with Urian. So maybe I was too low on this card. I don't know. It does feel like a fairer form of magic, like you conceded, but there will be games that go down that fairer route. And look, the like Bant, Rampy, Mirror type stuff is fairish. Like it, it trends towards fair. Certainly games go very long. Card advantage matters. Granted, you usually have more of it than you need, but... You could see Maze Mind Tome finding a home under that context. I wouldn't necessarily start four of this card, and Omen of the Sea might be better just because you it, it just immediately replaces itself, right? And that's a little bit better than having to pay two mana to do it. But I do feel like this card supplements them quite well. And if the format ever moves towards those games mattering more, like there are more Bant Mirrors or Azorius Mirrors or whatever, I think the number of copies... Uh, will tick up. Okay. You're getting four cards out of your two drop. That's a really good return. Well, seven, because you you do it three times and then blink it. And then you're going to blink it. You got it. So uh, anyway, yeah, solid card. This card would not be in in my top 10, just to be clear. But okay. It does exist. It does do things. Spark Hunter Masticore. Three mana, three generic mana, artifact creature Masticore, three, four, as an additional cost to cast this spell, discard a card, perhaps a bartered cow. Protection from Planeswalkers. One mana, this deals one damage to target Planeswalker. Three mana, this gains indestructible until end of turn. This this is like good stats, a lot of words. You can potentially use your graveyard somehow, and I just still don't think that this is very good. That's interesting. I'm higher on this card. I think as long as Planeswalkers remain a focal point, this effectively manages them. And again, think about the context of present standard. Mastercore plays well through all the removal that's being played. You can give it indestructible in response to something like a sweeper effect. It outsizes Deafening Clarion. And a lot of decks are just banking really hard on Teferi being their source of removal. They just want to buy time. They just want to stall you. And Spark Hunter Mastercore makes that impossible. So it certainly feels like a card for the present moment. It's hard for me to see this extending into the future. But the other thing I'll point out too, I mentioned how you just don't run out of cards in hand. Like that hasn't really been a concern for a while in the standard. And under those guidelines, well, there's not much of a real drawback on Spark Hunter Mastercore. And if it's a mirror is ever about just establishing Planeswalker dominance, Spark Hunter Mastercore is going to insert itself in a very major way. I like the size and I like the body. I'm pretty high on this card. Three is a lot to to give it indestructible. If P 
people are playing more removal spells. I mean, like we've already seen like Glass Casket show up a little bit in main decks and then have the rest of the copies be filled out in the sideboard. And then we're talking about Eliminate and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm certainly not very happy to invest in this on turn three and then just have it get killed immediately. But if we do live in a world where Teferi is the main way in which decks interact in the early game, then yes, obviously this card is very good against strictly Teferi. And if nothing else, it pushes towards honesty, right? Like the fact that this is a must answer for several decks incentivizes things like Glass Casket. And I, I think that's a net positive for the format for sure. I agree. Anything anything that creates churn is good, but I'm not super happy to just jam a bunch of these in my decks from the get, you know? Mm-hmm. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, and then we have Ugin, the Spirit Dragon, uh, eight mana, you know, does all the things card. How you feel about this one? It's it's really good. What else is there to say? I, this is a incredible payoff at eight mana, dude. It's really good, right? It's yeah. it's really good. Elspeth conquers death is out there and setting you up for uh, basically immediate ultimates. It comes in at eight loyalty. You plus two Ugin sitting at ten. You minus and then you get seven life. Draw seven cards and put up to seven permanents from your hand onto the battlefield just the turn after it comes down. I was doing the Ugin Chandra stuff I mentioned. Spark Hunter Mastercore was a part of that as well, being able to just like reliably get this into your graveyard. I don't know how much it matters that you're reanimating this with Elspeth Conqueror's Death, but it just assures you always have an Ugin. And if your opponent isn't a deck that can challenge you through colorless permanence or you know potentially survive through Ugin, which not many can, this just seems like an endgame for a lot of decks in the format. Yeah, I mean another th- another uh, bonus part in Mascore's camp is that you know it doesn't die to Ugin being an artifact and, and everything, right. and we might need to look for threats like that a little bit more because the way that most decks were constructed, Ugin would be able to come down, use its minus, and then just not be threatened immediately. So you 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 need something to either finish it off with direct damage or some sort of haste creature or something. Like you need to be able to react to this. And yeah, Elspeth Conquers Death is interesting because most of the time people never were concerned about killing the enchantment. It was always like, all right, they'll get a Teferi back or a Narset back and I'll just have to deal with that. But dealing with an Ugin, especially with an extra counter on it, is going to prove to be a lot more difficult. So maybe you just need to be able to kill Elspeth Conquer's death now too. Yeah, I, I think more than any other card, this kind of will shape what the format is about. You will have to contemplate this end game. Ramp was already very good, but having a very clearly beneficial uh, end state will work really well for those decks. Obviously, this was like a pioneer staple early on. Just early Ugins were completely backbreaking there. We've seen plenty of it in Modern, in Tron, and I expect we'll see plenty of it in this standard. I am looking forward to a point where you can interact with Ugin on the stack and Teferi doesn't lock out things like Disdainful Stroke (laughs) because you can't really come out ahead when you're trying to answer an Ugin that's already hit the battlefield. Yeah, those would be the days when Teferi's actually gone. But yeah, Ugin, especially in a world with Cultivate and Solemn Simulacrum, and mm-hmm. we already have... Another Ur- card that doesn't die to Ugin, by the way. Yeah, well, I mean, true. It's kind of a, a body that's a little bit too small to really have me be convinced that it's going to be like an Ugin answer or whatever, but it's also a card that you can play alongside Ugin and be able to protect Ugin from like a mobilized district or something. So Right. Right, and gets you to eight mana too, which is a big deal. Yeah, it's definitely going to be relevant. So we have a lot of ramp options, and this is probably going to be one of the the better payoffs. You know, I think I'm okay with that. I'm I'm okay with Ugin being something important. There are enough reliable cards you could go to to inhibit Ugin's effectiveness that I like that being a focal point. We have Sorceress Spyglass. We have things like Banishing Light. There are uh, the Black Mythos as ways to like directly answer it. There, there's plenty of stuff out there that we can go to if Ugin becomes too much of the format. And it f- it'll feel good to have a really clear focal point, I think. Yeah, man, I agree completely. I'm, I'm happy that this card exists. It is cool. I'm probably going to register this at some point. I would not be su- surprised at all. Yeah, this is in my range. And then for lands, uh, we have the Enemy Temples, Fabled Passage, and Radiant Fountain. 
Radiant Fountain may or may not do anything, but uh, it's it's still cool that it exists for like control decks or colorless decks or mm-hmm. Heliod decks. It is interesting to me that Temples and Fabled Passage are the lands that are in this set. I'm not really happy about it, and I don't think it makes a lot of sense, right? Like in the age of Arena, I remember when I was just like getting my Arena account started, and you know, like Ravnica comes out, and so much of your rare wild cards are tied up into trying to get the dual lands, especially if you're trying to build decks with multiple colors. You know, it's like, I want to have a Boros deck and a Simic deck. And it's like, boom, all your rare wild cards are gone, right? So like, why would you make these the dual lands rather than something that makes me eat up more wild cards? So your concern is that they're not coming after your wild cards aggressively enough? I'm just shocked that they aren't. So a lot of people are ex- upset about the inclusion of these cards because they see it as like a burned wild card or a burned rare slot because there is no duplicate protection on something like Temple of Silence. If you have four copies, you end up with eight copies and you can't do anything with the copies five through eight. Sure. Okay. That that does kind of make sense. But like that that's just it's it's better that's a better scenario than what I'm talking about, right? Where it's like you're you're already gonna have the dual lands. And then if you open them, uh, you're not opening a new card that has value to you, but then you also don't have to spend wild cards to fill out the rest of them. Right. So you lose on both ends when it comes when it comes to this particular setup. I've heard this complaint a lot. Here's what I'm going to say about it. With the release of Ikoria and the addition of human drafts, I built all of Ikoria and didn't spend any money and have more gems in my account than I did when the set started. And I, I'm not like sitting in high mythic. I don't play all the time. I just drafted a bunch when the set came out, won a lot, and basically parlayed that into having every single card in the set with no dollar investment. It feels to me like Arena is pretty generous right now. Like not super generous. It doesn't really compare with something like Legends of Runeterra, which I think is just an awesome economy that is very clear, very direct. You get (laughs) to buy the cards you want. It is now. It it was one of its huge sticking points at first, but they fixed it. They got to a place where it was very good. Yes. So I, I don't hate the way the arena economy is set up right now. I think it's like striking a nice balance of being accessible and still justifying its existence by making wizards some money, which is obviously an important part of the equation. So I I don't want to like naysay these complaints. They're valid. Certainly it sucks to have five through eight worthless cards in your account, but I am pretty happy with the shape of the arena economy right now, I have to say. So I think that you could have done what you were talking about doing with draft before human drafts. I think the difference is, is this set you actually play? Well, yeah, I'm not miserable. That, That is the difference. I agree with you. Okay, so it's it's easier to play because yes. the, the games are not as ridiculous. But yes, okay, so that makes sense. Uh, if people are going to complain that they're going to open a useless card, I think that Wizards just at that point should force you to get new dual lands with every set. Like they they shouldn't they shouldn't be reprinting any duels. I don't know. I mean, that ignores a lot of the reasons they might have reprinted these duels. It could be for gameplay considerations. It could be... No, absolutely. I, I agree. It's like, okay, yeah, temples temples are fine to be here. They're, they're good to have in standard. They're fine to stick around. I think that we have wanted some untapped dual lands for a while, and this could mm-hmm. have been a pretty reasonable place to, to put them. It's like we've spent so much time maybe maybe even in the last two years but definitely or yeah the last two years but definitely in the last year where we don't have a lot of good aggressive options and if you print like some fast lands or something and now aggro is real in the format it's like well that that creates like a very exciting last three months of the format right yeah look i am obviously pro shakeups right now. And I think my stance on ban eight cards in standard made that pretty clear. I, I would <laughs> love a huge shakeup. Obviously the approach presently is more conservative than that. And we don't know what's coming in the next set. It's really hard for us to understand why temples were the choice without seeing the entire big picture. Someone remind us a year and a half from now to go back and reevaluate this decision to have temples be the rare land in the set and see if we can make heads or tails of it. Yeah, man, I'm shocked. I thought I thought my rare wild cards were just never going to be safe, but I think I think they're kind of safe now. 
rares are no longer a pressure point for me. It is the mythics now, which yes. is probably how it should be. Uh, but there was a period where that wasn't that case, and that was basically due due to lands when you had to fill out your mana bases. Everyone was short on rare wild cards for a long time. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. Now, now it is. It's mostly evened out where I'm. You know, it's like I'll have like eight mythics and like twenty rares, and obviously thousands or whatever of commons and uncommons but that's more in line with just having zero rares and like 40 mythic rare wild cards and it's like what is this economy even like i don't understand now do you burn your commons and uncommons when the set releases sometimes i know it's technically correct it's just not a good use of my time i don't think right it's not clear to me how big the return is also things like that where it's it's technically correct to do this kind of rote process and if you know about it you do it if you don't you just lose value are real feel bads and i would look very carefully if there was a way to eliminate that from the system because it's just like a knowledge gap and if you have the knowledge you get a few extra points if you don't you just have more uncommon and common wild cards than you could ever possibly use right yeah it is it's strange to me and for people who don't know it is Technically correct, where if you have a bunch of common and uncommon wild cards, that when a new set comes out, you should use those wild cards to craft all the commons and uncommons in the new set and then start opening packs because it will fill your vault faster. Yeah, weird little system. But I'm not trying to click 30,000 times to get like 2% of my vault. I'm just not going to do that. I know. Your time is valuable, Gerald. Use it as you you see fit. I'm not even going to try and say that my time is valuable. Uh, because I, I haven't been doing a whole lot of worth as of late, but I still don't want to waste the time that I do have doing stuff like that for the smallest amount of equity possible. I feel you. Yeah, that's about it. Radiant Fountain's dope. I'm going to put that in some decks. It's probably going to be bad, but whatever. Oh, I've played a lot of Radiant Fountains and usually very, very happy with it. So I'm sure that it'll, it'll make the cut for me as well. <laughs> very, very happy with it. Okay. Oh, yeah. I played it in blue-black control, like post-Magic oh, yeah. Origins and loved it there. I've certainly played it enough in Amulet and gained dozens of life off my Radiant Fountains. So big fan of this card. Obviously, it's busted in Amulet. We're not going to debate that. But that blue-black control deck, you should feel bad. Andrew Brown should feel bad. Pearl like Ancient should feel bad deck was so good no it was heinous perilous vault oh my god what a horrific magic card top notch removal spell for sure well that is gonna do it for this week's uh course at 21 previews hopefully next week we also just get a bunch of bangers i'm excited and we're gonna close out the episode as always with a question from the fine folks in our discord and the person who we arbitrarily select is going to get an arena deckless enamel pin in the mail at some point. I promise. And the question we selected this week comes from Troy. And Troy wants to know, what is your favorite core set of all time? To me, they all just blend together. I'm just going to say this one because this one does genuinely have me excited. And I think that there are both new and old cards that are like exist on all parts of the spectrum from like aggro to control to combo. And I'm, I'm just stoked. And a lot of the reprints got me very, very excited. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe looking back, I'm going to be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That one, I guess was my favorite. Cause they had like preordained and lightning bolt and all these busted cards or whatever. But as far as like juicing my excitement for magic and like getting me building decks, this one nails it. Agree. The reprints here are just, Swing for the fences reprints, without a doubt. Obviously, this was a very key component of this set. They were looking for splashy, exciting cards to bring back. And I think thus far they have succeeded. And as you said, plenty more to go. So I think that's a respectable answer. I'm not going to shame that at all. For me, a few core sets stand out as really getting me excited the first one's a little weird. I remember being very excited about 10th edition because it went back to black bordered and there were a bunch of cards I wanted in black border. So at the time I was really into 10th edition and uh, things like pain lands come to mind. I think pain lands were in 10th edition and you, you know, you blew it, right? How so? Because back then the way to get black border cards was to get the foil versions. Right. Yeah. This predates my foil obsession. I know. I know. I'm saying like you, you could have just been on that train for yeah, the past 20 years are, or whatever. 
Those are very valuable now too. I really did blow that. <laughs> well, anyway, continue. Still, in the moment, very excited for the blackboarded cards. Things like Wrath of God uh, was a very big deal to me. Portal, Alpha and Portal. Sure. Well, I was not particularly rich, so uh, Alpha was not an option. Even at the repressed Alpha prices of that time, I it probably like, couldn't swing a Wrath of God. It was like ten dollars or something. Probably it was. No, not not by the time tenth edition came out. I don't think we're at the ten dollar Alpha Wrath of God stage. I would guess someone find an old inquest. I'm going to guess it was seventy dollars at that point. That's Ooh. my guess. Yeah, you might be right. We'll that's that's that a lot for out. Wrath of God. The, I remember the Portal one being like fifteen or something. And oh I had, yeah, I had Look, one. For the longest time, I saw magic cards as game pieces, and all I cared about was their function. It was not about aesthetics for me. I just wanted to be able to play the cards in events and. Even at that point, events were pretty rare for me, so it wasn't even super important. I possessed the cards, but some cards I did have an emotional attachment to, and I remember Blackboarded Wrath of God, for whatever reason, had me excited. But for the most part, it was just, give me the cheapest version available. And then at this point, the Blackboarded versions became the cheapest version, so I was able to get rid of the ugly whiteboarded versions. Another core set, 2010 felt really special to me. And I, I think it's because it's, uh, it's about the time I started getting really invested in competitive magic again. And it was a very big return to the classic magic themes. Uh, I really appreciated that. I was playing a lot with my brother and cousin at the time who were also the people I played with in like 94 and 95. So for them, it was resonant as well to return to classic Shiv and Dragon type stuff. So I I must have bought like five or six boxes of course at 2010 just because I was so into it. Uh, and we would just do three man drafts and we drafted a lot of course at 2010. And I remember enjoying it. So who knows if that actually holds up. Uh, but a course set draft that I really definitely did enjoy, uh, Magic Origins, I thought was a pretty good draft format. And I drafted that quite a bit and and liked it. So that's that's my hierarchy of course sets. Yeah, Origins, Origins was nice. Origins did not feel like a course set and the right. draft environment was hyper aggro, so I liked it initially, but it didn't have a whole lot of replayability. Okay. Yeah, I, I was into it very hard for a short period and then out of it pretty quickly after that because I was very busy at work at the time. So basically, once the Pro Tour ended, I got away from it. But during that very brief period, I remember being really into that limited format. Yeah, that was a, one of the few limited formats where I actually beat Raptor in a sanctioned match. So I guess it's got to be a great format. Yeah, that's just the unequivocal way to tell. It's just a slam dunk format. I 6 0 the PT draft, so you know it's definitely a great format based on that. I 3 0 the first one, and I won at least one round. I think I might have went one and two in the second one, but against Raptor, still had all these languishes, didn't even need them. It was, it was nice. Great. Yeah. Got him. Got him. Th- that's it, I guess. That's game. Sure. Sure. That's game. Good luck.